hear it read. This is John 11, starting in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. There he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? He will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. I want to give you just a little bit of space to seek the Lord in prayer we've been trying to do week by week. And then I'll close us in prayer as we come to the word. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Death was once our great opponent. Fear once had a hold on us. But the Son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. Free from every plan of darkness, free to live and free to love. Death is dead and Christ is risen. It was finished upon that cross. Lord, we thank you this morning that your word that ever points us to the cross, that ever reminds us of your grace, has the power this morning to change our hearts, to cast out all fear, and to help us to look to your good plan, your perfect timing, your substitution of Christ, Christ in our place, so that we might be free indeed. 
Lord, we believe that what Jesus set out to do at the cross, he has finished and accomplished. We ask now that you would give us the power and the wisdom and your leading to follow Christ and to live in light of his victory. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, these chapters make it very easy for me. One of the hardest parts of my week is trying to pick a title. So I've just been naming these weeks The Resurrection and the Life Part 1, The Resurrection and the Life Part 2. Guess what today's title is? You're right. God's Sovereign Plan. No, just kidding. It's The Resurrection and the Life Part 3. Um, because this is, of course, Jesus' central teaching around the life of Lazarus, and, and that is the new life of Lazarus. We'll talk more about Lazarus in the weeks to come because chapter 12 opens up with um, a mentioning of him again and some plans that are made against him. Um, but it's got to be interesting to be in the mind of Lazarus, right? We don't hear anything from him. And he's probably one of the most interesting people that you can read about in the Gospel of John. He died... And then three days later, came back. I don't imagine that Lazarus comes out of the tomb and goes up to his sisters and says, hey, what I miss? I imagine it's the opposite. What are we missing, right? We're far more interested in what Lazarus got to experience than what anybody who is in the presence of God right now might say, boy, I'm just so curious. Now, being in the presence of the one who is the resurrection and the life, being one who recognizes that death has no true hold on the Christian any longer whatsoever. It is just a doorway to the presence of God. Jesus says in verses 25 and 26 of this chapter that we've read from, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's a bold statement. Every time I read that, part of my heart kind of goes, but I've seen people die. I know I'm going to. And Jesus says, though he die, yet shall he live. And if you didn't think that was bold enough, in verse 26, he says, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. We talked about last week how what Jesus is doing is redefining death. Our perspective of death is what we use as euphemisms for, why people, for people who have died. They've passed away, or most popular, popularly, perhaps, um, they're no longer with us. That's our experience of death. And what Jesus does when he says, even though he dies, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die, is he says, you don't understand what death really is. It is separation from the goodness of God. It is the entering into what he's going to do at the cross for us. But now because he is the resurrection and because he is the life and whoever believes in him can have those things, death has no hold on us. Death is completely transformed. It's got a com we, we talked last week in that, that boxing phrase. He rearranged his face. He doesn't look the same anymore. We still hate death, don't we? It's still sad. We're meant to grieve. But again, as we read last week from the Apostle Paul, we're not meant to grieve as those who have no hope. We have to hold both of those things in balance. So Jesus has resurrected Lazarus. Lazarus is alive. He's just as good as new. He comes out of the tomb wearing the tomb cloths, and Jesus says, untie him and let him go. And there's a great notion in there of how somebody got to go up and 
take the grave clothes, grave mask off of Lazarus and say, hey, you're here, you're with us. Snap out of it. Because you got to imagine Lazarus coming out of the tomb going, hold on a second. <laughs> you know, everything was really great for a little bit. And now I'm back here? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> How quickly he would turn to Jesus and go, What's the deal? And then Jesus would say, hey, it's all right. We don't know. This is all speculation. And that's good. John doesn't tell us what Lazarus did or said or anything like that. But what happens after is so important. Because we're in chapter 12 in a 21-chapter book, but really, this is the fourth quarter now. This is the end game, as it were. This is the point where, you know, if if you're playing some kind of sport that has quarters, be it football or real football or basketball, if you're losing, if you're behind, or if you're winning, whatever matters, whatever you're going to do, you got to do it now. There's no holding back anything, right? And that's what Jesus has done. That's why this miracle is so huge. And I don't want you to walk away from Lazarus' resurrection thinking light of it. Oh, he resurrected, just like he could do anything, I get it. Oh, this is a really, really big deal. And interestingly enough, as we come to our passage this morning, we don't get any words of Jesus at all. It almost feels kind of like a ripoff, doesn't it? This is God's word. Why am I not seeing Jesus' words in this? What's fascinating, and what I hope you'll see this morning, are three divine actions in this passage. And I'm going to use the letter S for all three of them. Be ready to be amazed. But these three S words of what Jesus is doing, what God is doing, what God the Father is doing as Jesus is seemingly retreating, right? Did you see where he went? He went to a town called Ephraim, which was about 12 miles away from Jerusalem. Far enough, yet close enough kind of thing. But Jesus is silent in this passage. What do you do when Jesus is silent? That's probably a good idea, huh? Do the same thing. It's kind of tricky. I mean, we, we struggle with silence. Again, I'll point it out again that when we have our, our little minute of silence after reading the word today, I don't know about you, but I felt a little uncomfortable, kind of thinking, we got to keep going here, right? I mean, time is money, and lunch is coming, and there's a lot going on. All those things go through our minds in those moments of silence when it would be best for us to simply look to Christ, who, again, himself, having raised Lazarus, now appears to be doing something in silence. Well, here's the three divine actions in this passage that I want you to see. First of all, he is softening and hardening the hearts of people who see his work. He is softening and hardening the hearts of people who see his work. This is how God changes us. That's a fancy word when we talk about the softening and the hardening. You know, it's, it's when people see what God is doing in their response You can't see what God does and not respond. Do you know that? In one sense, when you come to church, we can call it what God is doing or what God has done or what God has said that we experience together, but you don't leave this room without responding. And I don't mean coming up and saying, boy, what a song, what a sermon, what a this, what a that. I'm saying that at the place of your heart, God, when he speaks, never doesn't do anything. Oh, that's confusing. He always does something. 
He either is softening our hearts or hardening our hearts. Look at this in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, we've seen this before where people have gone and told the Pharisees about some miracle. You remember this when the man, the, the paralyzed man was healed and it said that some people went and told the Pharisees. And at that point, it's not totally clear that there's opposition in the hearts of those individuals. But right here, it is clear that there is. John is communicating that. And so notice this in your Bible reading. Notice little tiny words like at the beginning of verse 46, it says, but there's a contrast. So there are some who believe, many rather, John says, who believe. But in contrast, there were some who went to the Pharisees. This might be simple, obvious grammar for some of us. I don't know, but I'm going to go through it anyway. Either they believed or they went to the opponents of Jesus and told them what happened. They didn't believe and, they believed or, okay? And that's not to say that they never believed afterwards. We don't know. We don't even know who these people are. They're just mentioned as Jews who went to mourn with Mary, but there were some who believed, and John draws a line of distinction at those who went out and said, we got to tell the Pharisees about this. There seems to be a supposed opposition that's going on, and that is the hardening of the heart in response to the word of God. So then if that's the hardening, what would be the softening? It would be those who believed, right? When faith comes, that is the softening work of God in our hearts. This is how God changes us. The action that happened was the life-giving resurrection power of God in Lazarus' life. You had to respond to it. The people who went home after this, and they came back perhaps to their wife and opened the door and came in. Hi, honey. How was your day? Oh, I was all right. I went and grieved with Mary and Martha. You know what? Lazarus uh, is alive. I mean, that's not just a side thought. That was the thing that happened that day. You have to respond to those kinds of things. And if the gospel power of Jesus' resurrection brings resurrection to us, then we're going to notice the change. There's a really great pastor of this awesome illustration that you probably heard me say. I don't know. I'll apologize if so. But he said, if I came here and my, my shirt was all tattered and dirty and my hair was messed up and, and I came up here and stood up here and preached and, and you came up to me afterwards and said, boy, couldn't you have you know, maybe cleaned up a little bit, maybe gotten yourself a little bit more prepared for this task of preaching the word? He said, well, what if I said, you know, on the way here, I was all ready, I was clean, I, I wore my tie, but I got hit by a semi. Can you believe that? Right? You would expect to see him tattered and bruised and dirty and messed up. But he said, what if I wasn't, and yet I said, I was hit by a semi on the way here. I said, well, you can't possibly have been hit by a semi and not have it change you, particularly in the sense of you might not have come to preach the word to me. That can't possibly have been why you were late, because that kind of thing doesn't not have such an impact. I'm sorry, I'm struggling with the double negatives today. That kind of thing always has an impact, right? This is the softening and hardening work of God in the hearts of his people. J.C. Ryle, my buddy from the 1800s, says that the same fire that melts wax hardens clay. It's the same exact fire. The softened heart, like wax, melts and is affected positively in the believing sense before God's work. But the hardened heart, the, the clay that will not 
be melted, that will not be affected and softened by God's work, will only continue to harden afterwards. Think about, for another example, in the upcoming chapter, chapter 12, uh, when Mary comes up and she washes Jesus' feet with her hair. And uh, one disciple, particularly, you'll know him very well, verse 4, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who he was about to betray him, said, why was this anointment, why is this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. See, even here, as he sees this perfect example of the honor that is due Christ, the humility of his people before Jesus, and Judas looks at it and goes, oh, what a waste. And really what I mean is, I could have had that. Now, in another gospel, in Matthew 26, he tells us that it was at that point that he said, enough is enough, I am going to betray Jesus. I can't take this anymore. That kind of action hardened his heart. The clay was hardened by the work of God and the revelation of who Jesus was. So what's the difference in the softening and hardening? It has to be what we saw in verse 44 of John 6. You can turn there if you like to look at it as well. John chapter 6 and verse 44 says this. This is after the feeding of the 5,000. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you want to be raised up, if you want that resurrection that Lazarus pictures for us, the the weight, the burden is not on you to figure out how to believe. You need to be drawn by the Father. So this is what's going on as the work of God and the revelation of God is softening and hardening. He's drawing, and in some cases not drawing. But that's one of the things that is certainly going on in this moment of Jesus being silent. Secondly, substitution. Substitution of his son for his people. It's another big word that just means that he took our place. This is in verse 51 and 52. And this is in a very funny context because you have this man, Caiaphas, prophesying. And he doesn't believe in Jesus, obviously. He says that they should kill him. But he was also a high priest. And so in holding that office, he was able to sort of, through a veil, see something of what God was doing. But his hardened heart interpreted it differently. And so look at verse 51 and 52. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Well, it's fascinating because for us who are well-versed in our Bibles, we look at that and we go, oh yeah, he died on the cross and his death and resurrection brings people to him. But the way Caiaphas saw it was, hey, he's our scapegoat. He's our way out. He's our substitute. He could take our place. So the plan of wicked men is veiling the true plan of God. So even in the silence of God, we see his enemies revealing the plan of God. There's a funny thing going on in verse 52 with this word gather. Because if you back up to what the fear is that they have, um, look at verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. They were very afraid of what would actually happen here. Um, and this idea of gathering is the same word for, for synagogue. The, the, the same Greek word that we get, this word synagogue, this place of gathering of God's people. And so in verse 52, when the prophecy is read to us that he's going to gather his people together, this is the exact thing that they're afraid of. 
They're afraid of that, that the Romans are going to come and scatter us, and Jesus is actually going to gather his people together. And that's the effect of his substitution at the cross. The last S, sovereignty. We see his sovereignty in waiting for perfect timing. In verse 54, look at what Jesus does. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews. This is that kind of fourth quarter moment here. This is where everything is changing. No longer walking openly. He went from there to a region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. There he stayed with his disciples. This is not fear in Jesus' heart or, oh my goodness, they saw what, I'm gonna do, what I've done. They're afraid of what I'm going to do. I've got to get out of here. This is him saying, I am going to lay my life down. I've already said that, but it will be in my timing. The patient will and rule of God. No one is in charge of what Jesus is going to do. No one takes his life from him, but rather he will lay it down. So if these are the actions of God, what is it that stops us from embracing this? This this idea of God's plan has been seen in multiple stages in the Gospel of John. We've seen phrases like, it was not his hour. His hour had not yet come. We see that all the way back in um, the wedding in Cana where Jesus says that. But even to go back to that wedding in Cana, do you remember why he says, my hour has not yet come? Because his mom came up to him at the wedding and said, hey, they're out of wine. They're risking embarrassment, and they're going to have to send everybody home. This is going to be a great shame for the family. They're out of wine, son. What are you going to do? He says, hey, my hour has not yet come. See, when we don't grasp the plan of God, fear contends for our faith. And that's the temptation I think we need to be aware of this morning. Because we can be tempted to fear our loss more than what we can actually gain when we follow Jesus. You see that very clearly in the Sanhedrin, right? The rulers, the leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees. If we let him keep doing what he's doing, you know, things like showing his power over life and death, the Romans are going to come and take everything from us. If Jesus is allowed to do what he is supposed to do, I'm going to lose something. Is that true for you, Christian? If Jesus is allowed the reign in your life, that he deserves, that you need, are you going to lose something? The answer is absolutely yes. You will lose something. So how are you going to respond to that? For the Pharisees and Sadducees, the thing they were afraid of losing were two things, their place and their nation. And those possessive words are very important. It was our place and our nation. Well, yeah, your place as leader of God's people is going to be usurped by the Messiah. That's how it ought to be. And your nation, yeah, you won't get to make all the decisions if Jesus comes and is in charge as he ought to be. So even in the Christian life, even as we live day by day, we are tempted in some ways to fear what we could lose if we really went ahead and obeyed Jesus today. Faith and fear are those two responses in 44 and 40, sorry, 45 and 46. Some of them believed, many of them believed, but some of them went to the Pharisees. Because they realized if Jesus can raise Lazarus, then what can't he do? That's the big uh, idea of of this miracle. Is yes, I am the resurrection, I am the life. It's an all-encompassing kind of statement. And if he can raise someone back to life, there's nothing he can't do. That's an absolutely right assumption to make. 
And yet the problem at the place of our hearts is, okay, well, there's nothing he can't do. That also means there's nothing he can't have, but I have something I don't want him to have, and that's my autonomy or my own rule over my life. I would like to keep being king in my own heart. I'd like to keep making my plans, and I'd like him not to thwart them, and he can have whatever else I don't really want. John's purpose in this gospel, in chapter 20, verse 31, which we refer to many times, is that these things are written so that you may believe, and that in believing them you may have life. The assumption opposite is that in not believing them, what do you have? What's the opposite of life? It's death. It's all that's left. And that's where Lazarus was going to be if Jesus didn't come in and say, Lazarus, come out. That was all that was left to him was death. But to those who believe, life is offered, life is given, life is purchased on their behalf. I want you to consider these two steps in how fear hardens the darkened heart. You remember this from John chapter 1, that the the light shone in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. Um, The message, which I know we kind of give a bad rap sometimes, but sometimes it's a good commentary to use. In the message, he translates it as, the darkness could not put out the light. This is exactly what our hearts want to do when we fear that we could lose something that Christ rightly deserves. And so here's the two steps that we see. First of all, the Sanhedrin refused to reconsider Jesus. They refused to reconsider him. They're being passive. Yes, he raised someone from the dead. I don't care. I don't like him. I don't want anything to do with him. Because I know what a Messiah means. I know that he is supposed to be the king. And it's been pretty nice not having a king around Here comes the Lord of the Rings reference, I'm sorry. In Return of the King, the bad guy is Denethor. And he sits such a, if you haven't watched these movies yet, why have you not fired me? I don't know. But in Return of the King, there's this great shot where you have this beautiful throne and it's super high up in the air. And there's all these steps leading up to it. And then next to it is this little puny seat. And here's this old festering guy, you know, sitting there hunched over. And he's the, the, the steward of Gondor. He's not really the king. He's the placeholder. And when he hears about Aragorn, who is the rightful king, and that he might come and take that place, his words are, we have no king. We need no king. I am the steward of Gondor. He can't take this from me. And when we, in our fear, respond to the work of God... We are being that little guy on that little throne next to the big empty one and saying, nope, no one, none shall pass. No one can come up to these steps. Stay away. This is mine. I'm the steward. Don't think that if you understand those illustrations that you don't need to watch the movie still, because you do. Okay. So the Sanhedrin refuses to reconsider. They're being passive. They're ignoring it. They're stopping their ears. Hey, if Rome, if this happens, Rome's going to take away our rule, our nation, our temple. Another fun Greek thing here in verse 48, as they're talking about that, um, they're talking about Rome coming, and literally the Greek word says that Rome will lift up from us our nation and our place, our place in our nation. And what's really cool is that word in the Greek for lift up is what Jesus did with his voice when he brought Lazarus back to life. He lifted up his voice. So they see the lifting up of the voice of Jesus, and they're afraid of somebody else lifting something else up, taking something else away from them. So they become passive. They stop their ears up. The second step of what fear does in hardening our hearts is what we see with Caiaphas, is a determination to kill Jesus. So that passivity very quickly becomes opposition. 
No one's allowed to have a gray area with Jesus where we just say, hey, it's okay if Jesus is your thing, he's not my thing. The Bible says in Ephesians that we are enemies of God apart from Christ. So, so there is no gray area. You're not neutral. You can't join the United Nations and avoid the enemyhood of another nation. When it's God that we're talking about, our sin places us in opposition to him. And that passivity that might say, you know, just go find another throne that turns into opposition, there's not a big gap there, is there? Because that's how this story goes. They say, boy, we, I don't know what to do. I don't want to do anything with Jesus. So if we let him continue, then he's going to take everything we own, but I don't know what to do with him. Quickly, the opposition in our hearts then wells up into, well, let's kill him. Darkness cannot overcome the light. When we're faced with the reality of Christ's power and influence, I want to know today, are you willing to change or do you try to tune him out? Do you just kind of, is part of why it's hard for you to read the Bible in the morning? Because you know that if God says something to you, you're going to have to respond. There's either going to be a softening or a hardening. That's right. So do we come to a place where we're willing to change or do we try to tune him out? Passivity and oppositions are best friends. If we don't have an active relationship with Christ, we're setting ourselves up to be in opposition to him and to try to put out the light of life. But what Christ does at the cross and what Caiaphas even prophesied here, that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, what Caiaphas tells us is the gospel here. Jesus is the one who's going to die for the people. He's going to become the substitute in our salvation. He does it all. His presence purifies our hearts and he purifies our motives and, and he casts out all fear because of his perfect love. If Jesus can raise Lazarus, there's nothing he can't overcome. And that includes his own death when we see his resurrection. And that includes your hard heart. It includes those times that you say, I know what God says about this, but I don't want to do anything with it. God is able to overcome your heart. And when he does that, he doesn't do it just simply with a stomp to end everything. Sorry to wake you up. But he comes in as the good shepherd who does what when he loses that one? He leaves the 99 and he finds that shepherd and he doesn't say, or he finds that sheep. He doesn't come to it and condemn it. He picks it up, puts it on his shoulders, and rejoicing, goes back home and has a party. He celebrates what he's done. And at the cross, we see that only his grace can overcome our hard hearts. We can't change on our own. But if Jesus can raise Lazarus, he can overcome our fear. He can overcome our passivity and even our opposition to him. Even those times that we actively choose to ignore and to run in the opposite direction. Remember Lazarus' resurrection and the eternal life that you have in Christ now. Remember that what his resurrection means for us is that faith in Christ is not about us coming to church, getting baptized, becoming a member, doing good things, saying the sinner's prayer, none of that. It is about God changing your heart. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Remember we emphasized this last week. Jesus' order is very specific. Whoever lives. Can you make yourself live? No. Faith is the cry of the newborn who has been brought into the world. Faith is not the thing that, well, boy, you're here, but we don't see. No, faith is just the inevitable when life, new life is given. 
When we've repented and turned to Christ, when we've put our faith in Jesus, it's happened because, as Jesus said, you must be born again, born anew, given new life. So Christ shows no fear in slowing of his plan. Though he knows what they're going to do, he knows they're going to put him to death, but he also knows that no one puts him to death. He lays his life down. He softens his people's hearts by his love, by the work of his word and his spirit, calling us to trust him. He became our substitute to gather us together, to purify us of our own opposition. This is in the end of this passage. The Passover of Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. We can't purify ourselves on our own. I mean, there's the ritual of the Old Testament, but Christ is the one who ultimately must do that on our behalf. And then amazingly, he sovereignly waited. He waited to gather his sheep. And it's really cool because when he talks about his sheep, he's not talking about those who will believe. He's talking about those whom the Father has given him. So the starting point for your faith in Christ is that you are the gift of the Father to the Son. That's amazing. That puts an enormous value on you, believer. That's your identity. Fathers love to give good things to their children. And so God the Father gives his people to his Son so that we now can commit our lives to a holy living in light of Christ's completed work, in light of what he's done, and knowing that his plan is accomplished and succeeded, we can move forward. We can look at those divine actions, again, the softening and hardening, and I can now say, since I know Jesus softens and hardens hearts by his work, I can trust that whatever he will do through his word or by his spirit is for my good, so I can freely go to him. H.B. Charles says that it is the will of God to have the Spirit of God use the Word of God to make the children of God look like the Son of God. I've been wanting to use that one for a long time. I love that so much. Because it always ends with of God, right? The will of God, have the Spirit of God, use the Word of God to make the children of God look like the Son of God. That's his plan for you. That's what he wants to do in the resurrection. Secondly, we come to substitution again, and we know that if he's been substituted for us, then I can trust that what he's done at the cross cross, is for me, that I am accepted by him, not of my own merit at all. And then lastly, in sovereignty, in seeing his waiting, I can trust his character while I wait for his work, because I know he is good. Spurgeon quote, to use one that I haven't used before, here's one I use all the time. God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. You may not always see what God is doing. He may seem silent in your life. That does not mean he's not working. When you cannot trace his hand, you must trust his heart. So let the work of Christ be your motivation to repentance today. Be your willingness to hear from him and be used by him and and see his great work in your own life to live holy to him, set apart for Christ, to be those that are purified, the gathered sheep of the good shepherd. Check your response this morning when you consider the silence of God. How do you respond? Do you respond in faith or in fear?